of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 566. Jason Lindgren is with me and Mario Garza from Symbolic Studies joins us again. Mario has been on two prior episodes. The first one was 549. The second was 554. The title of the notes we're drawing from that Mario drew up is called The Feline, the Serpent, and the Dragon Connection. I think an easier way to kind of put it in a nutshell is we're going to be referencing the sky clock, at least predominantly. Uh, We may get into some lost Saturn lore at the end of the second hour, but we'll see where this goes. Welcome, Jason. And a fine good afternoon. Yeah, it is cold here again. Uh, It's the weirdest, weirdest winter here. It's warm, 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 then it's extremely cold, and then it goes back to warm. But anyhow, let's jump in. Welcome, Mario. Welcome back. Right on. Thanks for having me again. Can you tell folks where they can find you, please? Yeah, of course. So they can find me at SymbolicStudies.com. I'm all over the place on YouTube, Twitter, things like that. But they can find all of my social links over there on my site. How was your response uh, following the last two episodes you did? Oh, it was fantastic. People had a lot of interesting information to share with me. And I found that that's probably one of the most valuable things with putting out information and just getting your name out there is just the the quality sort of uh, messages that I've received and some of the I guess, uh, recommendations with books and and links and videos and authors and things like that has been really fantastic. So it's almost like every time I say something or put something out there, uh, I'm able to just kind of have a new well of information to tap into. So it's been really great. And you have a fantastic audience. So thanks again for the invite. Yeah, well, you know me, I'm all about the books. Um, It is getting so tough to get to valuable information. It's one thing to use the internet to like fact check, get your dates, get your things like that. But to dig into a topic, it is getting so difficult. I mean, you use a lot more than, than I do, Jason. I mean, it's almost like by the month now getting tougher, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. That's been basically uh, what I've noticed as well. And so I'm stocking away and hoarding as as many books as possible. And uh, I'll say that the authors and the information that I'm coming across these days, because I've been doing it for a handful of years, is just getting to be really, really high quality stuff. And it's it's leveling me up. So yeah, I, I definitely feel the same way for sure. I mean, even the mundane things I wanted uh, one, I, I have a couple movies that I like. I, I guess I don't really have favorite movies and I didn't really like them so much back in the day. But I like them now because they're not packed with a bunch of propaganda per se, and they have something to say uh, that is valid within the world. And so I wanted to look up Punxsutawney Phil because one of those movies is Groundhog Day, which incidentally, almost nobody gets what that's actually about. But I wanted to look up information on Punxsutawney Phil, and I was so disappointed even going to you know the Groundhog or whatever it is, their website. It's just so kind of abbreviated and there's no meat on the bones anymore but i maybe i should mention the movie since i since i mentioned it people are probably going to comment uh in groundhog day bill murray keeps dying over and over and over and what people most people miss is the kind of sub information that's not put out forward it's maybe based on this really old eastern idea that to become liberated from the cycle of rebirth you need to dedicate more than 50% of your life in service to others. So now when you apply it to Groundhog Day, you see what's actually going on there. He keeps coming back, keeps coming back until he learns uh, to be a decent human being to other people. And I don't even know why I brought that up, but 
All right, Mario, where do you want to pick up? You want to pick up on the serpentine symbolism? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start there. So the serpent is a really interesting creature for a lot of different reasons. And I would say along my symbolic journey, what I've learned about the snake has evolved. It's grown. And I'm now in a position, I think, to talk about it because I understand a lot of the correspondences that really make it a potent symbol to decode. And I think a lot of people kind of get it wrong, in my opinion. Or at the very least, there are layers and tears to it that I think kind of get overlooked. But essentially, the serpent is really a primordial creature. And so it relates to primordial traditions. And the idea of a primordial tradition or primordial traditions is something that I've become very, very interested in over the last handful of years. And so my understanding is that largely there are three main symbolic traditions. I talked about this before on your show. I believe that we currently live in a very solarized sort of world, that we live in a solar tradition. This fits in line with heliocentrism. Prior to this, we lived in a largely lunar tradition, a a lunar symbolic framework. And prior to that, there's a number of names for this earliest tradition, but Sometimes it's actually referred to as the primordial tradition. It could be referred to as the stellar tradition. Prior to me discovering a few authors that really talked about it very potently, I was referring to it as the northern or polar tradition. And this is because this early tradition has a lot to do with Earth symbolism. It has a lot to do with um, the northern sky, including the stars, uh, you know, the the Polaris, uh, the North Star, excuse me, Polaris, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and then also Draco as well, played a pretty big deal in this earlier tradition. And so the serpent has a direct connection with this earliest symbolic tradition. And so I just mentioned Draco as an example. And so Draco is in the northern sky, and it's actually the only constellation that is in between Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. And these three traditions, by the way, just to kind of reference something that I've talked about before on here, is that there were three different sky clocks in my interpretation with these traditions. So in the solar world, people follow the sun and track the sun and the signs along the ecliptic. In the lunar tradition, it was largely based on the moon. And then in this early tradition, the primordial tradition, it was largely based on the fixed stars. And it was largely based on specifically because they're so close to the pole star, Ursa Major and Minor circumambulating around the pole star. So that to me seems to be the earliest sky clock was Ursa Major and Minor going around the pole star. And so this is something that you will see referenced around the world. And it seems as though a lot of modern day symbolism literally came from this portion of the northern sky. And arguably, I think that a lot of serpentine symbolism relates to this. Do you feel like there's a constant? I mean, cross-culturally, the serpent can mean a lot of things. I mean, we go into meditation, it'll be associated with Kundalini. We go to the Vatican, you know, it's going to show up in the book of Genesis if you see where I'm going there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that A lot of this earlier symbolism you can still find all over the world. A lot of times the symbolic sort of associations have been transferred over time. So with the serpent as an example, so there's plenty of solar symbolism we could talk about with the serpent, which we will get into uh, a little bit. There's lunar symbolism connected to the serpent and there's celestial 
symbolism connected to the serpent, right? And so I think that when you really start decoding some of these myths and how the serpent has been portrayed, you will realize that it's connected to this earliest tradition because it is such a primordial creature. In fact, the serpent has really been viewed as kind of like an ageless animal. Um, And so people have associated the serpent with being very old, with being very wise. There's a lot of priest classes that have made use of serpentine symbolism. Even there were some priests, like the uh, Akkadian priests. Uh, My understanding is that the word that they use for priest literally meant snake charmer. And in other cultures, the word for priest essentially means serpent. And so it goes way, way, way far back. And this is what we're going to find is we're going to find that the the serpent is actually a bridge of sorts between these traditions and between, I would say, uh, points of time. And that is largely what the serpent has kind of been associated with, too, is cycles and with time. The undulation of a serpent has been related to cosmic time or cosmic energy, you know, this kind of primal sort of life force, right? So... The serpent to me, what seems to be the case is that it has always been associated with this concept of a center, a sacred center, a supreme center, and also with something that is all-encompassing. And when you get into what I refer to as the northern tradition or polar tradition, this concept really comes into play very, very strongly. And so when I talk about the North Star, one of the most important things that uh, I always keep in mind is the fact that the fixed stars revolve around this point in the heavens, right? And so it's the hub of a wheel. It's the hub of a great wheel symbolically. And so it's interesting that the uh, North Star is also called Polaris or the Pole Star because this is an older reference to what's referred to as the world axis. And it's this idea that there is a center to reality, to this domain that connects all of the spheres of reality together. And the ancients had different names for it, but today you're probably going to find it uh, be referenced as the world axis or axis mundi. And that there's a symbolic thread or symbolic pole. Sometimes it's compared to a ladder. I'm thinking of snakes and ladders, right? Sometimes it's compared to a column or a lance, an obelisk, things of that sort that this idea of a world axis generally comes in a very phallic sort of shape, um, something that's very much related to a pole. And the idea is that this pole extends from the northern portion of Earth through the pole star, through the rest of the spheres of reality. And so there's this golden chain, if you will, that exists between all threads of life, no matter how big or small. And this is very much related to the world tree and world tree symbolism and tree symbolism. And it's not uncommon, right, to see a serpent wrapped around a tree. This motif has been mirrored and echoed so many times throughout history. Snakes wrapped around a pillar, snakes wrapped around a cross, snakes wrapped around some sort of column or a tree or something along these lines. And to me, what's really being symbolized here is the snake going between domains, going between different spheres of reality. And so this relates the serpent to kundalini symbolism like you brought up. It relates it to other psychopomps like Hermes. In fact, Hermes and Thoth have both been, there's early expressions of them that are very serpentine-like in nature. It reminds me of the caduceus of Hermes, 
right? Where it's two serpents going up a wand. That wand is a symbolic bridge. A, a staff is a symbolic bridge between the above and the below. The world tree is a symbolic bridge between the above and the below. And so the world axis, one of the core principles behind it is that it occupies a center, a supreme center, the cosmic or world center. And it's also what bridges the gap between the above and the below. So it is uh, what separates the above and the below, but it also is what connects the above and the below. And I believe as an example, when you look at the magician card, the magician is well known for holding a wand in one hand and he's pointing it up in the air. And then he has another hand that's pointing down below. He is saying, I am what connects the above and the below. And I am what separates the above and the below, right? So anyone who studied Hermetic symbolism knows the uh, importance of as above, so below, right? And this card is ruled by Mercury, and it's the first card in the major arcana. I'm inclined to think literally the number one is a reference to the world axis because it is seemingly where everything comes from and returns to. This would be in line with the Taurus field, the middle of a Taurus field. Right. So the middle of a Taurus field is the trunk of the world tree. And so when you see a serpent going up a tree or going up a column or a cross, he is literally, that serpent is literally traveling up between realms the same way Mercury or Hermes goes between realms because he is a psychopomp. He is a guide of souls. And so the serpent has been compared to a psychopomp as well. In fact, a lot of symbolism with the serpent has been. Basically, that the serpent is related to both life and the afterlife, essentially. But a lot of primordial gods, a lot of really old gods, in my estimation, based on my research, actually relate to the northern sky. And a lot of gods that are in that space are considered to be a little bit newer, even though from the human perspective, they're quite old and quite ancient. From what I gather, the northern gods are the oldest gods. And so that's why I think. Relating the serpent and understanding serpentine symbolism with the northern sky is important because it relates to this idea. The serpent going around the world axis, to me, is no different than Draco revolving around the pole star as well. And so when the night sky is turning or churning, Draco is going around this pole star, right? This is where we get, by the way, like draconian laws and, and or the word draconian from right draco and so it's a dragon but it's also a serpent and serpent symbolism and dragon symbolism are very much related to each other in fact i see that they're virtually synonymous and by extension too it's really interesting and we'll get into this but the feline or the cat is also very much synonymous with the serpent as well and this is really really exposed or it really comes to light when you start studying the strength card because literally the hebrew letter that corresponds with the strength card is a teth or tet which means serpent and it also means a vessel of some sort as well was serpent symbolism some of the earliest most important symbolism for mankind i believe so Yes, there, there's a lot of really old ancient symbols that are extremely important. Uh, I'm thinking of like the stone, or I'm thinking of the elements themselves, water, fire, air, earth. But the serpent, as far as creatures are concerned, I feel as though that it's probably the most feared and revered and studied creature that there is in the animal kingdom. 
In fact, when you look into it, you'll realize that the serpent has been given the title as the original king of beasts. And nowadays, you would think that the lion is kind of the new king of beasts, right? And like I said, the feline relates heavily to the serpent. So yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's probably the most important animal in the animal kingdom symbolically because it it connects to so many different things. And it's kind of mercurial, actually, I would say, in that there's a lot of feminine symbolism with the serpent. And then there's a lot of masculine symbolism with the serpent. But then there's also a transcendental quality to the serpent as well. And I think literally it has to do with the fact that it looks kind of like a rope. It looks kind of like a phallus. And because it moves the way it does, the implication or the uh, the thing that I get from it is that it does connect realms together. That's like the deep, deep, deep encode, in my opinion, or what people have kind of pulled away from the serpent is that it connects point A to point B. And so this could be this reality with the afterlife or the underworld. That's another thing is that the serpent is heavily related to subterranean sort of symbolism as well. So there really is this, to go back to Mercury, uh, this as above, so below correspondence with the serpent from subterranean depths, uh, the underworld to the celestial heavens above our head. And the serpent has been related to God, to goddesses, you know, things of that sort. So it's kind of all encompassing. So it, it's really, it's interesting to look at it this way because it's seemingly, I almost can't find anything that it doesn't relate to, right? There's many, many, many myths about it. And there's letters, you know, arguably the letter S, right, is a, is a reference to the serpent in my estimation. Even literally the S of an S is kind of reminiscent, right, of the, uh, of the serpent itself, the hissing sound of the serpent, which has been used for divination purposes and all sorts of things. And let's not forget, too, that the feline also hisses <laughs> as well. So some people have have kind of picked up or gathered or or put out the theory that there is literally like a direct correspondence correlation between the serpent and the cat and that the serpent may be in some way shape or form also turned into the feline at least that's what a lot of the myths kind of suggest that they're they're more in line with each other than what you would think I always kind of thought that the thing there was that they had senses like cats you know, they were used as familiars as an example. What's that old movie from the 50s, Bell, Book, and Candle, where they show the cat being used as a familiar? Mm. I always assumed that the association was the idea that that particular animal had senses that were unique. But you think there's more of a correlation there? Well, certainly symbolically. So how the feline came to be is it's great, great, great ancestor, a serpent, you know, I can't really say, but let's just unpack some of the correspondences or some of the similarities between them. Before you jump into this, I wanted to back up to the pole star and address the 666 pound gorilla. First off, I think you rightly have pointed out that the Northern sky is almost ignored in our time compared to most of the other things. And I think you're right about the fact that we've gone solar and we pay more attention to the ecliptic and the zodiac and even the southern sky. But the pole star, do you accept that 10,000 years ago it was different and 10 or 20,000 years in the future it will be some other star? Do you accept that idea? Just so people listening know what I'm talking about, the procession of the equinoxes, you can look that up and they'll tell you basically we're living on a globe that's wobbly like a top. 
And that's what causes perception precession, which I don't accept. But the idea there is, is that tied to that precession are pole star changes. So do you accept that idea, Mario? I personally, at the moment, I can't accept it. It's something that I've known about for a while, precession of the equinoxes. It seems like precession really covers up a lot of heliocentric lies, essentially. And so I think that that is kind of some of the inspiration behind why it's so heavily promoted with geocentrism versus heliocentrism. Heliocentrism, there's so many things that you have to unlearn. And I feel as though that has been something that I've kind of shed over the last handful of years. We've talked about this before briefly, but no, I I can't really say that that's exactly where I'm at personally, that procession occurs. I'm open to the idea and it seems as though it's true is that this is this pole star that we currently have Polaris is the eternal pole star, you know? So it's always been compared to this sort of timeless sort of energy, this, this timeless stillness kind of quality. And so if it's always been the same, then uh, I think it just adds to that even more so. But related to procession, though, so it's said that if procession did occur, which I don't accept, you don't accept either, but that the older pole star, according to some authors, 3000 BC, I'm very skeptical throwing out dates, or I'm hesitant to throw out dates, rather, because I just, I don't know what year we're living in. I don't know, you know, the the reference to time and everything else, it's so out of whack. And so I can't concretely give out dates and feel confident when I do. But according to some authors, in 3000 BC, we had a different pole star and it would have been Alpha Alpha Draconis, which is the serpent's eye. So that's kind of another interesting thing that some people have put out there that literally the serpent's eye of Draco was once the pole star, just adding to the northern symbolism. But that's neither here nor there. You're talking about Thuban? What I just recently read was uh, Alpha Draconis. 3000 right. I think, BC, I think yeah. the proper name was Thuban, and I'm with you. I don't accept for a second that the pole star that we have now was at some other time different. And by the way, that would be very easy to fake. Someone in the Vatican, you know, doing what they did with all the records, all they had to do was get an old record that says some guy remembers that this was the pole star because nobody's going to live long enough. Right. And part of the problem is, is if this is true, then we should be drifting off the pole star. And by the way, you mentioned Alpha Draconis. I'm pretty sure the name of the star these days is Thuban. Okay. Well, we have a pole star. What do we call it? We call it the pole star. So that's a pretty important star, right? That's the center of everything that rotates up there. So wouldn't you imagine that if it was some other star in the past, it would have taken on an important name to match its important position? Uh, right. But I just I just wanted to ask you, because I'm where you are, too. I think it's a complete cover up for the Vatican or whoever came up with the ideas that we're going to do the globe thing now and the sun's going to be the center of everything. Yes, exactly. And that's something that I, I'd like to talk about just briefly. Okay. The idea of the center shifting. I think that this is what's referred to when people talk about a pole shift or at the very least, I think some references to a polar shift. It's actually a reference to the kind of hearts of man and and the minds of man that their center their supreme center which was the most divine place in the cosmos that that has shifted over time and so one of the angles with my work that i keep on pulling at and reading about is this idea of a great shift from solar symbolism to excuse me polar symbolism to solar symbolism and a lot of 
symbols, a lot of myths, and a lot of ideas that were once connected to the pole star and the northern sky and this world axis later on got shifted towards the sun. And so I feel as though this is an appropriate time, actually, to to bring up this concept related to the idea of where the Zodiac maybe comes from. And there's two authors that I've come across recently that have referenced the same idea. I had my strong hunches about this before they had mentioned this, and I, I know people who have thought similar things. The first author that I'm going to reference, his name is Rene Ganon. And he clearly says he's one of the best symbologists, by the way. If people want uh, reading material related to symbolism, I really like the work of Rene Ganon. He's fantastic. He's one of the great symbologists in the modern world, opinion, because he understands a lot of the primordial aspects of symbolism. And he understands that symbolism changes over time. And he understands this great shift from polar to solar. And so what he says is that the signs of the ecliptic, the signs of the zodiac, are inspired from an earlier northern cosmology. And so I thought that was really interesting. I have my strong hunches about that because of certain signs that I've decoded relating to the northern sky, um, relating to the world axis. And the second author I'll reference, his name is John Major Jenkins. And he has a book called Galactic Alignment. And in it, he says that basically the ancient Chinese people had an eight constellation zodiac, essentially. And so they had an eight constellation system up in the northern sky. Each constellation related to a different trigram. He said that this is when the I Ching was starting to be developed. So they had eight constellations, one per trigram. And he said, over time, when the great shift happened from polar to solar, he said these eight constellations in the northern sky got transferred over to the ecliptic, and then they added four more constellations. But essentially, he says that their zodiac, uh, their 12 sign system relates back to the northern sky. And so I'm inclined to think that this is actually the case, that our signs of the ecliptic, the the symbolic meaning behind the signs goes back to Northern symbolism and it goes back to this Northern sky. That's how important it was. And so again, I think that this center uh, is where things emanated from and also returned back to, not unlike a Taurus field. That's so interesting. So interesting to think about that. I was reading, I don't know, I didn't even remember what it was, but there was a claim that the oldest zodiacal constellations, or the oldest, is the bull. And if I remember correctly, I think it said the second one was the lion, but I'm with you. I think there was a time when the sky was divided up for the seasons and there were only four. I had not heard what you said about the Chinese, but are you also aware that if you look at the ones we call bears, the dippers basically... Uh, I think there's an association there when they are plowshares or something like that. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That That's one of the big correspondences is that they were plows. Yeah. So there's even uh, there's an Irish flag. It's called the Starry Plow, and it looks like the Dipper. And it's literally a very simple illustration of a plow. And they put the stars of Ursa Major along the different points of the plow. And so uh, the plow has, yeah, it has been one of the classic sort of correspondences for Ursa Major. So generally, the biggest ones have been, of course, the dippers, the bears, great bear, little bear, the plows, 
the wagon as well. I would say that those are the bigger ones, but there's also been references to Ursa Major being a boar. That's a kind of fascinating rabbit hole, um, actually, why it relates to the boar and then how it got shifted over to a bear at a certain point. Uh, reindeer, fish, uh, sailors has been another one. It seems as though, from what I've picked up over the years, is that Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, that they are kind of like, I don't know the right way to put it, but it seems as though there have been a lot of regional references to them. And so it's not uncommon, right? When you're talking about the signs of the Zodiac, a lot of different cultures, it's kind of amazing how many of them see a scorpion, right? Where Scorpio is, or how many different cultures do see something like, uh, I don't know, like the bull, right? The Ursa Major constellation has had so many correspondences that I'm kind of inclined to think that a lot of people were kind of encouraged or however it worked out to be, they saw their own meaning behind it. I would point out that there's probably a difference there because if we're talking about the zodiacal signs, a lot of cultures have been of a mind that when these certain stars are behind the sun, then these influences are prevalent. Uh, when you bring up the scorpion, uh, that's a gimme. That's probably the only constellation I'm aware of that actually kind of looks like what we call it. It does look like it has a scorpion's tail. But when you go to the northern sky, you don't have that immediate influence that's associated with the sun, which is associated with the seasons. So I, I would point out that I think there's kind of a difference there. But to be fair, in the modern era, we what, what you said is true. We really don't pay a lot of attention to the northern sky for some reason. I mean, it's even in the Bible, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all over the place. When you know what to look for, you'll see that it's referenced all over the place, uh, in my opinion, for sure. And that's a great point with the sun and the seasons and everything else, exactly. Scorpio, too, by the way, there is a tradition where Scorpio has been viewed as a, as a bird as well, or an eagle, right? Or even as well as a serpent. And so that is the three-tiered nature to Scorpio is kind of, it's a, it's a tradition to associate it with the scorpion itself, the serpent, and then also uh, the eagle. And when you do look at it, it kind of it does look bird-like, but I, I, I do see the scorpionic, the scorpion influence for sure. I can actually address that. So if you're familiar with the biblical symbolism where, what is it? It's the man, the eagle, the bull, and the lion. Right. Those are actually, and they're, those are associated with the gospel saints, of course. You can look it up. Uh, but with the scorpion, if you go to a map of the human body, you will see that Scorpio is assigned to the human genitals. In the biblical idea, Scorpio is being represented by the eagle, sometimes called the phoenix. The idea is that when you transmute that sexual energy, uh, then the lofty eagle or the phoenix rising from the ashes, that's typically the way that I have found that transformation to happen. I'm not familiar with the, the serpent in there, but in typically in that one, and just to make the point, if we're talking about where the sun is backed by stars, I kind of always assumed that it's like the reason that the bull became the bull is not so much that the stars look like the bull, but it's that kind of energy. Yeah. It's the bullishness. You know, it's like that old, that old riddle, right? What came first, bullishness or bulls? But that bullishness is a primordial energy found in that particular animal that best describes the energy that they feel is being created. That's kind of the way I've looked at it. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you. Exactly. That makes perfect sense for sure. 
Well, I didn't mean to pull you off there, but so go ahead, pick up where you were. No, you're good. You're good. I love it. So one thing that I feel like is worth unpacking a little bit is the other ways in which the serpent has been related to this idea of a center. And one of the myths that I'd like to talk about has to do with this serpent from the Vedic world called Vasuki. And Vasuki was a large serpent. And this is part of uh, a lot of different myths uh, of having a large serpent that plays an important role um, in some storyline, or sometimes it's a large dragon, right? But Vusuki was wrapped around a mountain and he was used, the serpent was used as something of a cord and that was pulled back and forth. And so this mountain was spinning or was churning the cosmic ocean. Of, of milk, sometimes it's referred to. And in doing so, a nectar of immortality essentially was created. And so Vasuki's wrapped around this mountain. There's two sets of demigods. They're pulling the snake back and forth and they're turning this cosmic ocean. Okay. The idea of spin, the idea of circumambulation, the idea of the world axis being literally like an axle is really, really important. And so this idea of spinning this kind of central sort of totem is something that you're going to see in several different places. And so Vasuki has literally been said to be uh, connected or fixed to the pole star, um, which is the uh, yoke of the world. And so when I imagine this serpent around this mountain, it's a central mountain. So the mountain is another substitute symbol for the world axis as is a stone as well, having this central stone. A lot of cultures have a central standing stone or a central pillar or obelisk or something along these lines. I would say the Kaaba cube in Mecca is another example of a central stone, but it's just a black cube. And in fact, the heart of the cube is literally a stone that's embedded in the corner of the Kaaba itself. There's also the Omphalos stone, which was considered to be a sacred central stone. You can find Omphalos stones with a serpent wrapped around it as well. You could also see the serpent wrapped around an egg too. So when the serpent is wrapping around something, you can view it as wrapping around this central sort of axis, this bridge between realms, or it's wrapping around the totality of everything itself, literally wrapping around the cosmos. So there is this divine central sort of aspect to the serpent that wraps around this uh, central point, or it's all encompassing. And so this gets into the idea of a world serpent. And so the Ouroboros to me is very much like this sort of idea, this world serpent. Uh, in Norse mythology, they have the uh, Midgard worm, a world serpent as well. And so there's several variations of this. And so to me, this reminds me of the circumpunct, right? So you have the external circle and then you have the dot in the middle. And I believe it was the first show that we did together. I talked about the circumpunct nowadays being a solar symbol. But my understanding is that it was once a polar symbol and that that center point is literally the transcendental point that exists and connects the above and the below, connects uh, all of the realms of reality together. And the outer circle would be, say, the shell of the cosmic egg or would be the perimeter of all reality. And so the serpent really has a lot to do with this sort of uh, outer, the outer limits of reality, the all-encompassing nature 
of what you see it in with these certain myths or this central sort of pole going up the world axis. Man, you touched on so much there. Vasuki shows up in not only Vedic, but Buddhism, but there's a similarity between them. If I'm not mistaken, it's Mount Mandara. I think he's said to be king of the Nagas, and maybe his abode is Mount Kailash, which is very sacred to more than one spiritual tradition. But the interesting thing about bringing up Vasuki is he's a Naga, and the Nagas mostly are a very certain kind of snake, not just any old snake. And this is interesting to me because when I was young, where I grew up, we were big into snakes. I have handled many snakes that I should not have been touching as a young person, rattlesnakes, all kinds of snakes. But there is a certain kind of snake in the world that is very different than any snake that I ever became familiar with. And I was very familiar with a a wide variety of snakes that were available to be caught in Southern California. That one type of snake that is so different is the hooded cobras. Mm. Those hooded cobras are different in a way that I can't describe to you. But when you look into their eye, there's a different kind of intelligence going on there. But the interesting thing about the Nagas is in some of the traditions, they will say that those were the teachers And that the hooded snakes that are, you know, squirming around on our world today were left behind when the Nagas left here because they were highly spiritual beings, which, by the way, could shapeshift. So there's maybe the the root of the reptilian shapeshifter idea that's so popular online. But the the snakes that we have were left behind and they devolved down to what they are now. But it's always been fascinating to me because of the importance of Nagas or hooded cobras in the Vedic lore and the fact that I know about them, that there is something very, very different about those snakes. And I have handled, again, so many snakes, I can't tell you, to the point where you start to recognize, I don't want to say personality because that doesn't really fit, but you know where I'm getting at. You you get to recognize the demeanor of a snake and what you might be able to get away with and what you can't. But when you see a cobra, it's like all bets are off. There's something totally different going on there. Anyhow, there's everything I know about Nagas. Beautiful. No, I love it. And I have some thoughts about the cobra and and the hood of the cobra. It's it's really interesting. I made a video a couple of years ago exploring some of the symbolism related to the feline and serpent and dragon and everything else. And I was blown away to see some of the patterns on the Cobra hood. And some of them look exactly like the circumpunct. It's amazing. It's a circle with a dot right there in the middle. Yep. And I'm like, that is fascinating. Is that somehow related to, you know, obviously the symbolism behind what that all means and represents? The other symbol that I've seen on the back of a Cobra hood is the essentially it looks exactly like the South Node symbol which the node symbols have been compared or likened to serpents as well. Uh, Rahu and K2, Rahu being the head of the serpent or dragon, and then K2 being the tail of the serpent or dragon. And when you look at the nodal symbols, they look very, very similar to some interpretations or variations of the Leo glyph. Oh, oh, to the Leo glyph. Actually, yeah. you're right, it does. But when you look at the hood, if the cobra is upright and you're looking at the back of his hood, It's like verbatim, the node symbol. And so let's see, the U is down. So that would be the tail of the dragon. That would be K2. Is that right? So north node, it's upside down. It's an upside down vessel. 
South Node is a, a vessel, essentially. Rahu would be the head. K2 would be the tail. So I think it's K2 because it's Rahu a vessel. North, uh, K2 South. Right. So I think it's South. The South yeah. Node symbol shows up on many of the hooded serpents. And on the front, there's like two circumpunks on many of them. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that as well. Yeah. So that really blew me away when I came across that. And I, I looked all over the place to see if anyone else had noticed the nodal symbols on the cobra hood. And I, I didn't come across anyone else that had noticed that, but it's certainly there. And again, is this actually the inspiration for the Leoglyph? I think there's something to be said about that. Not to interrupt, but the one with the circumpunk is called the monocled cobra. So people can look it up and see. Oh, interesting. Right, right. Yes. You know, and then related to the cobra too, you can find many examples of, say, Buddha with uh, seven cobras behind him, right? I think this is very interesting because the number seven, it just comes up so much that it, it really uh, shouldn't be ignored. And the the symbolic well with the number seven is extremely deep. And so uh, to have seven cobras behind him is very interesting. This fits in line with a number of other myths related to beasts that have seven heads, right? So the, the beast of uh, Revelation, it, there's a seven-headed uh, dragon, right? And actually, you're going to see a seven-headed lion in Crowley's version of the strength card, which he calls lust. And I can't help but think of the seven stars of Ursa Major and, and all of the sort of um, things that that encodes, right? And so this gets into another thread of information relating to beasts coming from the northern sky. And so whether it's a crocodile or even a, um, a hippopotamus, things of that sort, the, the serpent and the dragon, right? All of these relate to the northern sky. So what I found is that the northern sky is a completely, it's like a potent system that has so many things going on with it that seemingly a lot of newer myths go back there, but we're, we're just unaware of that. You know, we're just unaware of the symbolism. We're unaware that there was even this sort of transfer from polar to solar. Um, but a lot of beasts that need to be slayed come from the north. And it's really interesting when you look at the idea of dragon slaying as well. Uh, there's a lot of images out there with a knight or someone slaying a dragon. So one of the ones I'm thinking of is uh, St. George slaying a dragon. If you Google image St. George uh, with the dragon, he has a very, very long spear with him or a lance with him. And some, it's like exaggeratingly long. It's really, really uh, kind of, it can be so long that it looks like it, there's something kind of awkward about it. There's even images that I've seen where it's Mary holding a cross, but the cross extends so far that it kind of looks like a lance. It kind of looks like a spear of some sort. And oftentimes it's penetrating either a uh, dragon, a small dragon or a serpent or something along these lines. And so my personal opinion is that I think there's something to be said about the lance being another world axis symbol. And this isn't my conclusion. There are authors who came well before me who have essentially said the same thing. And that there's this idea that these beasts come from the north, but then also it's the power of the north as well that slays them. So this world axis symbol being related to polar symbolism and northern symbolism. And so I think that that's kind of a curious thing because the world axis relates to 
stability. It relates to tradition. It relates to uh, authority. And it relates to um, conquering evil, essentially. And I think that that is probably the most important thing that I can maybe relate to people is that when I refer to this information and this sort of supreme center, it's truly a supreme center in that it connects all other centers. So the center of the heavens connects to the center of our earth, which connects to the center of self, which I would say, arguably, we have a number of centers. The spine is our center. Uh, each chakra is considered to be a center. Uh, the wheel is is a symbol that relates to the chakras, right? And so the wheel has a center to it. That's how a wheel functions and operates. It has to be on an axle. So our spine would be an axial or axis symbol. But it also relates to our hearts and that our hearts are a center, right? And so to me, this is kind of what this information has kind of uh, awakened in me is my connection to the universe, my connection um, to self and my heart's connection to this uh, golden thread that kind of uh, exists and permeates all of the spheres of reality, not unlike a world tree, right? That extends up into the heavens and goes down into the earth. And so the world axis connects to the center. And I think that that's one of the things that has kind of been lost. And it's been argued that during the dark age, what is missing during the dark ages, what has been missing is the center. The supreme center, you know, everyone's focus is seemingly everywhere else besides self and besides what's happening locally, uh, what's happening within your family, what's happening in your own backyard. You know, uh, we're kind of taught, I think, or conditioned to uh, seek external validation and seek external solutions for external problems. And so when I first read this, this is a Rene Ganon thing. The idea of the Supreme Center being lost during the Dark Ages, it resonated very, very strongly to me. And that if we ever are going to exit out of this Dark Age, right? And you just recently did a show on these great ages, that it's a return back to the center, an awareness of the center, that that is what's going to bring us back to a, a more prosperous age. You know what? You've hit on some critically key ideas there. Uh, I'm going to go back to St. George in a second. But not having a center is a big, big deal. And I think you nailed it. It's known by those who run the world and what is perceived in the world. And I think the St. George symbolism is a no-brainer. What's going on there is Christianity is becoming the new power. And that dragon represents everything else that used to be in prominent positions in our world. And it's being overcome quite often. And I'd never really considered that as a pole, which is an interesting idea, particularly since the spear is often near the dragon's eye, which is claimed to be a past pole star, which I don't accept. But often that spear has a cross on the back end of it. So I think there's a lot going. There's a matter of fact, I have seen people who are interested in Tartaria showing the symbolism from the old flags that they think they have dug up on Tartaria. And I think these are important ideas to explore. And I hope people take it further and further. But to get around to the main point here, the idea that that is the pole star uh, and that we have lost our center, that is critically key. Because if what we have laid down here is right, what is the new center? Well, the new center is the sun, isn't it? So from my point of view, that is complete poppycock. We are the center. This world is the center, at least for us. 
And when I think about the sky clock, pole star, stars, sun, moon, it's all right here for us to make what we are doing possible here. So I think it's a key point you've brought up, but we're getting close to the top of the first hour here. Do you want to add anything in quickly before we wrap up? And also we need you to let folks know where they can find you again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to add a couple things here real fast. Okay. One of the things would be you're 100% right. So one of the things that I've recently come to appreciate is this idea of a great triad. And I'm, I'm reading about it right now. And some people have referenced this great triad as a number of things. I, it makes me uh, think of um, you know Trinity symbolism, things of that sort. Uh, the triune nature seemingly of everything. But the great triad being heaven, earth, and man himself you right you you are the third thing you are symbolically a pole i've mentioned this before on your show but we are people right there's a lot of things going on here where we are polar in nature essentially so we are the third great thing that connects the above and the below not unlike the magician card also regarding saint george and the dragon it's interesting because saint george from the versions of the myth that i've read saint george only killed the dragon after the townspeople converted to Christianity. That's what he wanted out of people. And so I think that that's very fascinating. And this relates to the idea that the quote, rising sun destroys the circumpolar stars. And it, it echoes exactly what you just said, essentially is that a lot of primordial information related to the Northern sky, all of the things that connect to it, including feminine symbolism, which I haven't even really touched upon went away when the sun became this new center for people. So I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. All right. Tell folks real quick where they can find you again. We got to wrap for hour one and then we'll get into hour two here. Yeah, sure thing. So once again, people can find me at symbolicstudies.com and they can find my YouTube and Twitter and things like that. I have tarot readings available. I do private lessons with people on symbolism and things of that sort. So definitely reach out if I can help you on your symbolic journey. You want to get anything in here, Jace, before I wrap it up? Yep. Let me just take a moment to mention the book list that Rose has put together. It's linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Crow 777 books, C-R-R-O-W 777 books. And this should be the list of a lot of things we've discussed on the show. You know, we're going to have to find a place for that on the site, but we're right up against it here. We're going to take a short break and come back an hour two. We haven't even touched really on Virgo, Leo, Hydra. We've touched on the world serpent, uh, the lost lore of Saturn, esoteric Aquarius. There's a lot more we can do here, but just the end there where we cover St. George, there is so much wrapped up in that symbolism. And basically, when I think about it, all the, the lying history that people are so fed up with, it's all wrapped up in that symbol. That is the Christianity knocking everything else off its standing place and taking top center, controlling information, controlling just about everything from spirituality to what we know about the history of our world is represented in that imagery. Anyhow, Hour one is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. Members get access to all the forums. They can create forums. They get access to all the comment sections, and they can download the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon anytime they like. The film covers just over half a decade of my telescopic work. It has 10 awards in the world now. 
With that, we're going to wrap up, take a short break, and come back in hour two. And I hope to see everybody logged in as a member for the second hour. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers. Belief is the enemy of knowing.